So, I'm Nick Bircher, and this is the Nordic Future Makers podcast. Today's Nordic Future Maker is Bo Helberg, who is Regional Creative Director for Europe at Dyson. So, Bo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, let's go straight in. So, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please? So, I'm Swedish by passport and uh, by birth. I have traveled around the world and Europe predominantly working in advertising predominantly. Uh, in my current role for Dyson, I am the regional creative director, which means that I'm responsible for brand, the output, making sure that things look spick and span, but of course also that we tell the right stories around technology and innovation and invention, that we are achieving the right kind of objectives with regards to sort of KPIs that we set up for a respective market, whether that be awareness, uh, whether that be share voice, whether that be sales target, whatever there might be. It all comes back for brand, brand communication, advertising, social media, and that kind of falls under my remit. Of course, it's it's much more of a team effort than that, but but it's kind of still in my head. So it's my responsibility ultimately, but I have a very talented team that we work with. Um, the Dyson job has been very interesting insofar that we got the opportunity to set up an office for Europe that didn't exist before. So it was quite an entrepreneurial challenge or mission, if you like. So there were two of us in a in a WeWork office, which is one of these collab spaces here in London that were sat opposite sides of a desk trying to figure out how to make this happen. And we grew the team very quickly over two years to about 35 individuals. And then we also set up satellite offices in the respective markets, or rather in the UK, of course, but also in Germany and Italy and in, in France and to, to manage things on the ground. And it's all about sort of insights that are local because how you perceive a brand in the market, on the ground, how people uh, think, how they act, how they purchase it is very, very different. Just to give you a few examples, in Italy, Dyson is, is obviously very much seen as a luxury brand. Uh, so the type of communication that you do is far more about out-of-home media, where you display objects like the objects of desire. Whilst um, And this is a bit of a cliche, uh, but in Germany, people still want very much the facts. So you could almost give people a, a spec sheet to convince them why they should choose one product over another one. But but these are sort of consumer behaviors, which is also very fascinating uh, when you look at sort of specific end markets. Okay. So where you are now, it's kind of, it's the whole communication. It's not just about making nice looking ads. It, no. It's overseeing that whole communication piece. Yes. It wasn't until I joined Dyson, I think, that I really got this kind of overview of the soup to nuts kind of marketing like the full range that goes through and how you know little things like uh, there, there was little things that we did uh, small small shifts small uh, amends in in how things were articulated or the small fixes that could have a tremendous impact on the bottom line but also the perception and how people behaved and how people understood how to use things that was great and I guess part part of that then becomes the mechanics of retail and and selling and and all of that stuff, yeah. rather than just that kind of the creativity bit. Yeah. So I guess I guess the the main thing here is like going client side was a good experience, and there's part of me that I think I wished I had done it earlier, particularly for that reason. You you get a you get a much more well rounded view of all the levers that are involved to make a success story out of a brand or 
a company. Um, when you when you work agency side, you can be quite focused upon the creative storyline or or the media formats or how you drive awareness or 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 perhaps you know even the promotional stuff that you do that that drives sales. But you don't you don't understand the full spectrum of activity um, that that goes on behind the scenes, the amount of work that goes in, and also how how you need to get your ducks in a row, just getting getting all the peoples and, and all the suppliers, uh, uh, all these ducks in a row and orchestrate them, uh, which is a big chunk of the work as well, of course. Cool. Well, let's, um, let's try and unpick it a little bit. So you're a Swedish guy in London, but you've had quite some journey before, before you've ended up where you are today. So let's kick that off. So you were born in Malmö. So, I mean, I, I started off... In Mal- I mean, I grew up in Malmo, and and I, I grew up there, and it, it was great. It's a, it's a great place. I'm a big fan, and there's a bunch of us who grew up there that, you know, we we share this thing when we go abroad and we live abroad and we move around the world, whether it's uh, Singapore or London or New York or whatever, and and we find these, we find ourselves all in this kind of situations where we look at something and we we just blurt out, oh, it's just like Malmo. And I, I don't know what that is, but, but we all do this. And it's bizarre. Like, I, I think I told you, I went to Bruges and I was looking at the canals and the beautiful houses. And it reminded me of the old town in Malmö and the canals. And I said, yeah, it's just like Malmö here. And, and my wife just looked at me with disbelief and says, this is a World Heritage site. What are you talking about? Your but frame I, of reference. Yeah, my frame of reference. And I think when you grow up in Malmö, there's this thing about Malmö being a great place you know it's like the benchmark for the world and it's kind of interesting and, and funny and uh, but I, I don't know what that means so I, I did probably I grew up in probably a very standard kind of way in, in, in Malmo and then you do the military service and after that when I I went off and I ended up going to Mexico my my godfather lives in Mexico and and he had the standing invitation for me to come over and so when I when I got out of the military service I, I popped over there and I, I stayed there for a couple of weeks, at which point he said, like, are you, are you going to do something? Uh, and I, I panicked a bit. So I thought, oh, do I have to get a job or what, what does that mean? And I, I found out that I could probably study, which seemed much more uh, suitable at the time. So I, I signed up and got into university in, in Mexico. And I got into a course which was about pre-Columbian art history. I didn't quite comprehend what it was, but it sounded a bit Indiana Jones and interesting. So I thought that that's cool. <laughs> Olmec, Toltec, Zapotec, and Maya, which was absolutely fascinating. So it was right. like travel around Mexico extensively in this bus. Uh, we looked at stuff. We had to write papers. My Spanish was really ropey, uh, but but I, I I somehow cobbled together and got through the courses and 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 did the test etc and it was it was fascinating and and the pre-columbian art history was basically going out into the countryside and looking at amazing artifacts so this is all before the conquistador comes over and i found this kind of rich history of craft of art of storylines that i i never knew existed i mean you know, again, Indiana Jones, you, you see someone running around in, in, in uh, or Lara Croft, you see someone running around in a jungle and finding some rocks, but you don't quite understand what's behind it. And and my, my Spanish was okay, but not great at that particular time. But they also had a program by which they would teach you 
uh, simultaneously academic Spanish. So that was great. And uh, that allowed me then to enter the second course, which is about classical Spanish literature, which is where I, I basically got an understanding of a completely different type of storytelling and language, particularly in, in Latin American kind of uh, literature, but also in, in Spanish literature from, you know, the 16th century, weird stuff. El Cid Campidor, God knows what. But it was, it was, yeah. And then, and then I did come back to Sweden after Mexico and, and I was a little bit confused at that time, to be perfectly honest, as you would be when you come back to Malmö, having spent time in, in DF in Mexico City and studying uh, things that are, you know, no one actually knows what it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, art history, what are you going to do with that? And, and that's, that's kind of where I started slowly trying to try and test different things. And I ended up stumbling into advertising. It was, it was sheer fluke. There wasn't really a plan. I worked a little bit in, in Sweden at advertising agencies in Stockholm, at Brindfors, etc. And um, then I got an opportunity to move over to Australia. And I, I somehow blagged myself a job into an agency called Peter Clemens BBO, um, which is interesting because I'm a copywriter by trade. So I became a copywriter in my second language and uh, somehow managed to do some, some decent work. So I had a portfolio, I had a book in English as you say, um, which allowed me later on to, to come over to London and work in advertising in London, which was amazing. And um, I somehow got involved in, in digital here through a bunch of events and circumstances. It, it tends to be quite serendipitous. There's people that suggest things or you meet people and I, I say yes more often than I say no. And I try things out. So I ended up in digital and, and did lots of early noughties kind of crazy digital stuff um, where we didn't really know what was going to work. So it was a lot of trial and error, building websites that, that fell apart because they were got too popular and we hadn't dimensioned the platforms properly or the service base. And it was, it was great. Um, it was a great uh, way to use creative thinking and concepts and trying out different media formats and different types of storytelling. And then I, I got an opportunity to join a big agency called Ogilvy here in London. And they had this amazing big office out in Canary Wharf with 1,200 employees. It was quite impressive and a little bit intimidating at the same time. And I, I walked in there and got myself a job there, um, also as a copywriter, which was a great opportunity. And I, I, um, I remember walking in there and they, they put me on this team that were working on this campaign for a moisturizer and soap brand. Which, which perhaps wasn't my favorite kind of subject matter, but it was Dove. And I, I walked in there in 2004 when the campaign for Real Beauty, which was perhaps the first big global purpose campaign, was developed. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand the significance. And, and, and I, I slowly started to understand as we went through it. And I worked with some amazing talents. Uh, Dennis Lewis, who was the creative director, is fantastic. And, uh, uh, and he, was a, he was a great guide and a great mentor. And, uh, and it was just amazing to have stumbled in in the middle of this kind of uh, a new, new place, which is purpose communication, purpose marketing, which was as much about sort of um, PR, if you like, like this stuff that you have to say, a brand having a point of view, not just selling. Um, and, and then also the amount of awareness it got and, and the creativity that came out because it was such a lovely platform to work from. So we got so much um, great advertising and social and participation um, coming into that one. And then 
And then, you know, in the later noughties, it, there's a lot of social media, but as well as a lot of additional advertising coming out. I moved over to France in 2009 to join an agency called DDB. Um, DDB was one of my top 10 agencies to join. Um, and this comes back to a guy called Bill Birnbach, who was one of the founders in Doldane Birnbach. And if you're into advertising, there's perhaps two people that are significant. One is David Ogilvy and the other one is Bill Birnbach. And I would probably hold Bill Birnbach in higher esteem because there's a lot of truths that he said, a lot of visionary thinking, but also a very simple view of communication and people and, and how we act. So he talks about the unchanging nature of man, that even though we come up with new formats, new media, how we behave and how we think isn't necessarily that different if you scratch the surface. And, and it was amazing to, to get an opportunity to join DDB. So I spent uh, five years in Paris, which again was a, you know, one of those kind of opportunities that came along. And, and again, I, I say yes more than no. So I, I moved over there, had an amazing time. But all of this was brand and communication and creativity. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in, in craft. I, I, I think there's... Um, I think ideas, again, ideas is also something that's got a craft element, but being able to articulate things, not just in a, in a fashion that makes it sound funny or making a pun, but actually understanding what drives performance, how to tell stories uh, in a way that is suited to certain media, all of these comes from craft and experience. And this is a bit like, um, it's a bit like when you learn to play the piano. It's just like playing scales up and down for years on end, just learning how to do it properly. And, and um, there's, there's a lot of people, particularly in the last, I say, five, six years, that, that I, I think um, see writing as just some words that you need to have in a piece of paper and don't spend enough time thinking about what it is and how things are articulated uh, or what it means. I think, I think you need to weigh the words properly uh, and understand it and thinking about the story that you're telling, but not just in talking about yourself but the expression of the brand what are the key features and then figure out how it's relevant to the consumer okay but i guess the craft involved in in pulling things together not everyone can be a copywriter no there's kind of skill and things you need to know with it yeah i mean that that's a that's a poison challenge isn't it um so uh, not not in copywriting per se but the question you just asked me so um, most people think they are uh, can write, which is which is an interesting situation to be in. So there's there's far too much where, well, I don't know if it's even the brand or if it's just people that represent or work with a brand choose to write things that they might seem to think is good or funny or whatever. And there's no empirical research. There's little understanding of how it works, or at least it seems that way. I don't I don't have a I don't have a clue why, but I, I see a lot of stuff that should be a lot better. When you're talking about critiquing other work and looking into what it is you you've obviously participated in a number of award shows with mm. entries and being involved in the work but you're also judging a lot of things over the years as well aren't you mm. yeah I, I judge i judge um so i've been quite um i've been involved so when when you start out in advertising you you obviously think you're great and you want to win awards because you hear it's a one can lines and dna d pencils and uh, London International Awards, and in Sweden there's something called Guldeget, 
and and that I think that's a good thing because you are pushing yourself, pushing your team, uh, pushing the agents and the clients to do things that is original, uh, but it obviously has to perform as well. And and I and I do think that's the right thing to do. Um, although there is a certain element of the award industry where people are doing things for for the awards only, which is not great. But the lion's share is great stuff. So, so having won a few of those, um, you also get invited to judge them, which is amazing because you see a plethora of work that's being produced and there's so much good stuff happening as well that's being submitted. And, and I, I do take that role and responsibility of, of judging the work as something quite important. I, I, th- I think it's important. You need to give people the time of day to go through it properly because they spent a lot of time. And I'm currently on the uh, president for something called the Youngblood uh, for DNAD, which is a lot of very young talent uh, being given briefs. We have one brief in particular for Lego, which is amazing. And I'm going through hundreds of submissions at the moment. And it's it's amazing to see um, uh, this flourish of, of creativity coming from everywhere in the world. Uh, there's submissions from China, from the US, from, from, from various parts of of Africa, um, all over Europe, of course, um, that are being sent through. So the way we work right now is we go through the pre-judging um, and then and then we do a shortlist and then we'll go through as a group and being the precedent on trying to make sure that the discussion is balanced, um, that we are pulling out the right values, that is a representation of DNAD's values, uh, which is, you know, exceptional ideas, um, original kind of execution um, and, and great performance. So so we, we go through these and, and hopefully by the end of, I think next week we're going to have some winners and and some exceptional examples of, of great work, great young work, new stuff that probably sets a direction for where advertising and communication go in the future. You've always had this reputation of being someone who's looking at new things and trying to find new ways of, of doing things. And I'm quite keen to ask you, um, and I ask this of a lot of people, but what are you curious about now? So I'm, um, I'm, um... What, I, what I've done or spent, I guess, about four or five years ago, I, I, was, I was looking briefly at artificial intelligence, more like a general curiosity, like what is it? And there was a bunch of books that came out. There was one in particular called Singularity. And, and it sounded a bit like it was scary and a bit Terminator. And Elon Musk said that it's going to come around and kill us all and all kinds of stuff. So I started thinking about it from a different point of view which was about well one is just trying to understand it and secondly how would it fit into my part of the world which is kind of creativity and i found that a couple of things the 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 first one is that artificial intelligence or what essentially it is is machine learning it's not you know there's there's no there's no big brain lurking in a vault somewhere that's going to, you know, plot a course how to take over the world through robots. It's, 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 that's not entirely true uh, or at all. Um, machine learning is, is how you can teach algorithms to do things by themselves and how to figure things out. That's the simplest way to explain it. And then there's a bunch of different things like neural networks and, and all kinds of ways to structure these um, and, and how they find solutions and how they collaborate between themselves. And the most important part is the data sets, which is the brains that you plot into the algorithm. So what you teach them, and you can do that either by buying things off the shelf that is ready, or you can have a bunch of students, for instance, that teach the machine things, teach them what the difference is between a tomato and a red apple. 
so that when the machine shows you uh, an apple and thinks it's tomato, you can correct it. Um, that's kind of how you teach machines. And either you have a, a ready-made kind of set of data that you can feed the machine, so it knows how to tell the difference between a tomato and apple, or you have to sit down and do that painstakingly labor-intensive work of going through it, which is how a lot of universities do it. But that's a long way to talk about uh, machine learning. But it's been around since, I guess, it came around in the 80s, but it got very expensive and there were some things that didn't quite work out to plan. Not so far that anyone died or anything. It was more like it wasn't very effective and it was costly and the processing power at the time was, was not tremendous. In the 90s, it snuck into banking and finance. So today, for instance, a lot of the a lot of the financial work is happening through machine learning, which is pretty interesting. So there's there's not a lot of thinking going on by humans. A lot of the investments that you have in your pension pots or whatever, and those decisions and how people are being and how the money is being moved around, is happening through a piece of algorithm that makes those decisions on your behalf to optimize depending on what your yeah. thing is. All that kind of stuff, just to get back to how does this fit in with creativity? So I thought. These are, these are quite binary tasks. I mean, the world that I live in is not binary. It's very kind of gray zone storytelling. So how does it, how does it fit in? And I, I, I started finding a bunch of people who had explored this. So there's a, there's a university in the US called Georgetown, and they have a piece of code called Scheherazade, uh, which is, you know, the, the, the woman from 1001 Nights who survives by telling a new story every night. And it's an algorithm that can write prose. And they've taught Scheherazade how to write prose over probably 10 years as it learns through trial and error and from students on campus um, that study English literature, I presume, it gets better and better. And today it can actually write decent prose. It's, it's you know, it's better than Dan Brown. It's not Shakespeare, but it is, it is uh, actually half decent. Um, and there's a bunch of other applications and tools and algorithm there's one uh there's one here in the uk that makes art uh, digital art and the art is inspired of what is uh, being communicated in in social media and the internet so it's basically sentiment tracking if you like but also articulations words that are being used and that affects it in and puts it in an emotional state that then sort of somehow gives direction for the output if it's if it's positive beautiful images or if it's dark and gloomy uh, what it depicts, what it chooses to depict. And, and there's a lot of uh, autonomy, uh, autonomous kind of thinking in these machines that are created that is happening right now. But it's not, it's not amazing and it's not super clever and it's not original. It's still, it's still parroting to a very large extent. Um, so I did research on this one. I've talked about that one. The one thing that I did find interesting, though, is, is the, are the opportunities within within uh, testing, you know, storylines, for instance. So I write scripts. And, and when you write scripts, um, you, 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 you have your characters, you have your storyline, but you want to try different paths. And that, that's quite labor-intensive. So you, you, you do all these rewrites. You could have an algorithm that could write sort of, say, six different types of stories or story developments uh, with the same characters where in one, maybe the main protagonist dies, and the second one, the protagonist goes on and lives happily ever after and the third one he gets married and perhaps it isn't the ideal marriage and the third one he has a whole bunch of kids and you see how they pan out and and in and your role as the originator the creator becomes more like a curator uh than perhaps the one that does all the labor intensive work okay so you're kind of 
you're almost like an editor and you've got the machine do producing the stories. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is my, I mean, I've tried to get people to work with me to build this kind of machine, but it's, it's not, it, it sounds simple when I talk about it, but it's not. There's, there's tons of code, but more importantly, the data sets cost a fortune. It, it, simple data sets cost hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of pounds. And particularly, I mean, when you talk about binary stuff, like uh, it's, it's black and white kind of world, whether you, you know, you need to talk about banking, for instance, it's, it's numbers. Are you going to make a profit or are you not? Pretty straightforward. Articulation, uh, the way that you weight words in, in, uh, in the way that you write prose, for instance, what they mean, how they're being perceived. There's gray zones, there's nuances. It, it's, it's really, really intense. Processing power-wise, it's intense, but also just the data sets is really, really intense and takes a lot of time and, and costs a lot of money. So it's, and I, I, you know, for me, it's, it's a little bit of a labor of love and exploration. Um, if you look at it from a commercial point of view, I, I don't know what, you know, would, would it make sense? I mean, some people say, oh, yeah, the machines will take over from creatives as well no they won't <laughs> it doesn't make any sense um and i can't see the commercial benefits and i can't see how we'd be better and this is more than just templating for dynamic creative this is about yeah. how you get an how you get a machine to feel and understand emotion and mood and things like that yeah it is it is because i mean yeah and, and that's the point right em- emotions and moods these these things are innately human and and machines can pick up on certain things. There's there's ways to teach them on some rudimentary things that are innately human, but but actually understand the transition from one state, uh, emotional state, into another one, uh, and how we can still function whilst we are under tremendous stress, for instance, is something that machines don't really comprehend. So machines can give you indications how things will perform. So this this happens uh, currently. They can advise you, but. I think that curatorship has to be human. Okay. Well, I love the idea of, so we started talking about your, your roots and your beginnings with, with mm. creativity. Yeah. I love the fact we've now progressed to how, how you can get machines inventing that process and kind yeah. of helping things to develop and, and move along. I've loved talking to you and hearing your, your story and your views on different things and, and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to kind of sit down with me and have a conversation for the podcast. You're welcome. Anytime. So thank you both. Thank you for everything today. Thank you very much. For everyone else, I think Bo is another example of a Nordic future maker, someone who's been consistently pushing the boundaries of what can be done and what can be delivered through digital and everything else. I hope you have enjoyed the podcast. I hope you will subscribe to the podcast and I hope you will listen again in the future.